So, now we're recording, and I have to clarify this because I have a live viewing audience that will be confused otherwise, but my intro here this week is, uh, two days ago, it was after I'd finished up work for the day in school, I was going to get ice cream, as I do, right? I like my ice cream, I like the, on the other side of town, these, like, uh, kind of blizzard-like things, but they have Kit Kat. And I just really love that. So I was on the way back, and I decided to take the, the long scenic route by the beach because there's usually heavy traffic in the later afternoon. Like, heading back the way I like to go back. So I take this hook over, and I think, oh, I'm going to get a nice view today. And then it's just this ugly swamp because it's super low tide, and it's like smells, and it's just not good. I'm like, well, this sucked. I wonder why I was like this today. And then right as I'm doing, going home, I see a Halloween superstore being set up. And this is the first week of August when I'm doing this. So, I, I kind of understand why this swamp looks so gloomy now. But, at the same time, I'm like, it's August. Why is there a Halloween store open already? And it's got all the costumes and everything already in it. Like, I, I get why there's always clearance in the supermarkets after, you know, a holiday season goes by and stuff. But why do they start so early? That's the part I don't get. Everything said in the Theta Talk podcast is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast is financial advice, and please talk with a professional investment advisor and do your own research before making any investment decisions. But welcome to Theta Talk, the show where you get premium for your time. I'm your host, Strat Becker. We're here to just talk about some things this week. I, I do have um, a couple of particular topics I wanted to talk about, but the first one tonight that I literally saw at the last second was... Grain prices could be impacted by a once-in-a-hundred-year drought in Argentina, and that could be uh, impacting exports of grain into next year. And my first thought was, if you ever remember that that Gord man on Wall Street bets right before GameStop, this guy that in Oklahoma that bet his whole savings on ornamental gourds and lost it all because the Argentina shipment arrived earlier than expected, this drought could end up, you know, helping him out if it, if it impacts the gourd demand or supply. So, I just thought that was pretty interesting. So, makes makes sense to just touch on that. You know, the guy went to South America and became the largest beekeeper in the country and then got then had to flee the country because he imported an invasive species of bee. And then he started working at Trader Joe's in Seattle. So, he's kind of had a riveting lifestyle. If he's still holding those gourds, maybe he has a chance. I, I don't know, though. About the Halloween store, was it Spirit Airlines? Or Spe- just Spirit? No, it wasn't Spirit. It was just like Halloween Superstore. But the, 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 I guess the headline thing I want to talk about tonight um, was imposter syndrome. I guess like anxiety in the workplace. Because for those that don't know, I've been working as an intern uh, at a fund this summer. And I'm not really doing, I guess, the work you consider at, at a larger place because it's a smaller firm. I'm much more hands-on and, and up, up the bar of tasks. So I'm directly talking to executives at companies as part of the research process and going to stores in person um, at times to look at products to, or to look at the stores depending on you know what company it is. And what I really wanted to talk about about that is, is just the anxiety or imposter syndrome that comes to that. I guess I'm a bit more of a naturally anxious person um, because of my past, but I think a lot of people can relate to the kind of anxiety thing. In, in particular for me, there's there's two uh, different types of it. The first one is um, when I'm going to stores to actually, you know, do research and stuff, or if I'm going somewhere to look at something for work, I'll get, like, nervous interacting with the people there because I feel like, oh, am I, am I just wasting their time or whatever, you know? And I kind of guilt trip myself into having, like, to buy an item, like, whenever I'm at one of these places. So, so whether it's, like, a snack or something or whatever... I, I feel like compelled to do that and like that, that kind of makes me feel less I guess guilty I guess I'm not really sure if it's guilty or anxious but it makes me feel like I'm not like you know wasting someone's time and then like not giving the business any sales so that they can like you know get their wage I guess the other one that I really deal with is when I'm talking to you know executives because I'll be prepared as hell I have this whole sheet usually when I go in for an interview full of five and a half pages long of questions that I want to ask and, you know, I can usually ask a, a, a few of them. About the store thing, is it commission type stores? No. No, I'm just talking about, like, regular stores, you know? Um, 
where it's not. Like, they're salaried workers, you know? But I just feel like, I, I don't know. I get this, like, mental thing where I feel like I'm wasting their time. I don't know. I, I really don't know, uh, Superman, the person asking that. Because I guess I just feel like if I'm going there and asking for someone that works there's expertise on something, and then I'm not contributing to helping the business, like, be okay or whatever... I just feel like I did something wrong. I know they're paid to answer questions, but I feel like if I'm doing that to, you know, make money for where I work, and at the same time I'm not doing anything to support, like, the person in a way, in, I guess, some semblance of way that helped me out with my work, I feel like that's kind of I don't know. I, I, I know I need to rationalize it differently, but, like, I don't... I, like, I'm not, like, breaking my bank over it. You know, I'm spending, like, five bucks, right? To just pick up a single item. I don't know. I, th I think also the other interesting thing is like, uh, at least for that part, I feel kind of like it's a, you know, token of, of the work I did to the research I did. Folks, adds up. Yeah, that's true. It's like uh, 20 minutes of work for me at the internship. But I feel better like in my mind to do that than not. The thing I think is harder to deal with is definitely the talking to executives one though. Because I'll be prepared as hell. Like I said, I'll have this whole five pages prepare questions ahead of time. I'll highlight like 20% of them that I definitely want to ask and then other ones that I want to ask if I get time to do it, you know, because while, while you're talking, right, um, you like you have a limited time. You're talking to these guys, you know, whether it's 45 minutes, hour, hour 15, whatever. So this whole set of questions set up that specifically out of the question list that I want to ask and it'll be specialized, personalized, whatever. And I'll have paper notes because, you know, you don't really want to type notes necessarily when you're on phone calls and stuff because it can be like clacky, whatever, um, you know, annoying, whatever. So I have to write notes by hand for it. Uh, and the good thing is when you ask good questions, oftentimes a lot of the other questions on your board will get wiped out through their exclamations. But I get really nervous right before these. Like, for example, I had a call with a company um, in the second week of August. And right before it, I'd spent the whole day making sure all my questions were set up, double-checking at the company, getting extra auxiliary information, you know, looking at patent history, stuff like that, looking at industry reports to see, you know, how recent trends are impacting the industry that they operate in, and, and trying to get as much as I can to be as prepared as possible. And I know I'm prepared, but at the end of the day, I feel like, man, I'm a 20-year-old college student that's doing this as an industry. And I do think it's real work that I'm doing. I think I'm actually doing a good job as, like, an analyst. But I think in comparison to myself, man... This is like a C-suite executive of a company and this, you know, whoever's been has been doing this stuff or, you know, working this kind of stuff for decades. You know, they're going to think I'm like this just worthless like thing, not worth any time, no matter no matter what I do. And that's not rational, right? But it's my thought process. Cause I feel like in comparison, I don't belong in that conversation, right? So that's the whole imposter syndrome part of it. And then right beforehand, I'll get like really anxious and what I'll do is I have this breathing thing I'll do this and then hold and then out slowly and I'll do it for a couple minutes basically and it's just like you know not psych myself up but cool myself down I think the really weird thing about it is that right after you know within a minute or so of actually talking you know all the anxiety's gone right like I'm not scared at any at all um, after, you know, a couple minutes. I'm in my flow, the person's, like, fine, and my initial fear is irrational. But that hasn't stopped me from, I guess, repeating that cycle of, of anxiety beforehand. Because I guess at this point still, I, I feel like, you know, I don't belong there yet, right? And, and I, I guess I, I talked to my therapist. I, I love my therapist. He's awesome. He's like, you know, I think it's, and he said he thinks it's an experience thing. That, like, you know, eventually that kind of fades away because then you, like, you know, when you're getting up the echelons of experience and, and getting positions and working place, you'll actually, like, feel much more like you belong there compared to, you know, when you feel like as, like, a, you know, 19, 20-year-old intern. And I think he was right when he said that. But I think at the same time in the moment, I'm like, man, this is scary. But I guess I wanted to talk about it a little bit, not just to, I guess, be vulnerable or whatever, but to, like, point out to anyone else that might be working in the industry you're aspiring to, that it's okay to be anxious or whatever, because it's kind of natural. You I mean, you're doing stuff and you might be newer, and then you're talking to these people that are, literally work for these companies that their whole lives, basically, and then they know everything. But at the end of the day, you're there to learn from them, you know, to make a better informed, you know, 
research report or whatever you're doing. So I, I think at the end of the day, it's not bad because you kind of want to come in not having as much knowledge as the person you're asking questions to so that you can actually get information out of the meeting that you're at. I think I kind of just have to incorporate that in as time goes on because you're never going to be the smartest person in the room like when you're trying to learn something. So I think accepting that and incorporating that much more is going to be pretty helpful going forward for me at least, and I think it's good for other people too. So that's my, I guess, mental health take of the night. Take it as you will. I think the next thing I have here is, uh, I guess, just economic data too. Like moving on to actual, I guess, crux of Theta Talk and talking more about these things. You know, the CPI data, especially core, came in below expectations, and then uh, the rest of it came in flat, and then PPI came in hot. And I, I guess what I have written down here, too, is uh, it's the initial transitory factors fading, at least in my take, and the price increases spreading through the economy. And I, I think, you know, the, if you take a look at the PPI, people will be like, what concern, oh, is it not transitory or whatever? I, I think this is a natural part of, of the whole transitory part, though, at least in my take. And I'm wondering what anyone else thinks in, in the, the audience about this. But my perspective, on, especially when I've been talking to more companies, listening to more conference calls and stuff, especially with work, is that they've been facing these commodity-specific issues for a while, you know, at least a couple months. But to actually price, to pass on the cost to consumers, you know, to not you know, get your margins murdered, you can't do that instantly. So when you see the, the CPI come up on used car stuff, I mean, that's you know, a much more immediate supply-demand thing. But for companies that are taking those raw materials into their existing stuff, not used cars, but things they're producing to put into the economy for consumers to buy, they can't just instantly price it because oftentimes those items are stores and stuff. They have to do certain acknowledgements to the stores and places where their products are at like, you know, 60, 90 days ahead of time. So my take on seeing much more of the broader price rise outside of, you know, used cars and stuff this month was that it's just a symptom of that you're seeing the actual impact of those raw material prices that you've seen just move in to the company's pricing actions. And you've seen other pricing outs that come in. Like, for example, Tyson's pricing announcement, they didn't immediately price. They started pricing in September, the new year, stuff like that. Other companies heard are doing the same thing. So it takes time to actually enact those things. I think it's more of a natural part of the transitory factor of things, um, at least on the CPI, PPI front. Jackson Hole is still going to be pretty interesting to listen to. Or, or not listen to, but, you know, hear what comes out of it. But I, I think at least in my take that it, it's part of being transitory because it takes time for companies to raise prices on finished goods to compensate for those higher input costs. Someone's saying to talk about commodities and sugar. I, I honestly, okay, I won't lie. I'm not really that up to date on the whole sugar thing. So if you want to enlighten the audience, uh, Scott, on what's going on with the, the sugar uh, we, we'd be more than happy to, to to hear what's going on here right now. You know, I, th I think it'd be pretty interesting. I mean, I'm looking at sugar futures right now. I have this little chart up uh, for the viewing audience to take a look at. It's definitely kind of zooting right now. It's up uh, 2% today, I think. So it's kind of flying in hot right now. Is this related to uh, the drought stuff? Because I did say right at the start, we were talking about the like, Argentina grain stuff. And I was making a joke about the, the Gord Man from Wall Street Bets from a long time ago. I don't know if it's related to that. Um, let me see if I can do a quick Google search, though. Uh, per se, companies that produce sugar can't keep demand because of droughts. Okay, it is because of droughts and flooding. I, I, I think, I mean, this is my like kind of hot take in a way. I, I don't want to be like defeatist and stuff, but... With the level, the, July was the hottest month on global record, if I'm not mistaken. It was, it was either the hottest July ever or the hottest month ever flat out. It was one of the two. Uh, I, I forget which one. But you know, the, Scott's saying, chat, real world effects of global climate change? Yeah. It, 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 a lot of that stuff is accelerating now in pace because uh, climate change's impacts aren't linear, right? It isn't like a straight line. It's, it, it's, 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 ex, it's an exponential impact. So it starts much slower than when it picks up and starts picking up way faster. For those that don't know, I used to work in weather coverage. I worked for this meteorological network uh, 
both my main job that I had the sole role of, excuse me, was managing the finances stuff. But I did a ton of coverage. So, for example, um, for the Atlantic hurricane season, you know, I was doing dozens of hours of coverage for hurricanes Ada and Iota when they hit, you know, Central America. I was doing, I like eight hour, twelve, eight to ten hour days on stream. Uh, covering, you know, Super Typhoon Goni when that hit the Philippines. So I, I've kind of seen it much more front-hand. Like, I, I think people like to throw off one-year stuff as anomalies, but just 2020 was by far the most active Atlantic hurricane season ever, had the strongest typhoon landfall in history. Actually, not the strongest typhoon, the strongest tropical cyclone landfall recorded in history based on uh, wind pressure. Or not wind pressure, but uh, air pressure at landfall. And it also had one of those, I think it was the second or third most intense ever recorded uh, cyclone in the North Indian Ocean. All, all in the same year. And it was hell to cover it. It just wore down. Because it you, you, you saw the changes over the, like the, you know, from five years to today. And I see that in temperatures here. I mean, this is fun, but I live in New England. New England's coastal temperatures have warmed over two degrees Celsius within the past ten years. So a lot of these storms that when I was a kid in the winter would give us snow days are just rain now, or they're sleet and it turns into rain. And then they don't, the kids don't get snow days off here anymore. So I actually saw that happen as my high school years progressed compared to when I was in elementary school. And that's going to have real ramifications for, you know, crops and stuff. So I think the sugar thing and the, and the grain thing in Argentina, or even the coffee thing in Brazil, these are microcosms of much larger economic issues that, that climate change is, is really going to end up, you know, bringing down. And it's scary to see those changes start to elevate. And I guess as a younger person, sometimes I feel a little helpless about that. Because, you know, I know it's real. And I know that the, the policies to, to actually fight those things should be, you know, much more universally adopted. But I don't have power to influence what the hell the government's going to do right now. People my age that are going to suffer the consequences from, like, current inaction don't have enough power, you know, politically to, to make those differences. And that... It kind of makes me a bit cynical, I guess, because I've worked on covering these things in the past, and I see their impacts not just economically through, you know, commodity stuff like that, water shortages, etc., but I've seen the impact on, on lives through actually, you know, covering them as humanitarian disasters, too. So I, I, I've adopted a bit more of a cynical view because of that, but I still, maybe I'm a bit naive for having optimism that we'll still end up doing the right thing, you know? Someone's saying, just vote? Yeah, and I do I do vote, fortunately. My, my first vote was actually last year. I was really happy to do it, actually, uh, and you're excited about that. Someone else is saying, wonder how Madrinas, which is a, a coffee company uh, that sponsors live streamers, is going to do with the sugar shortage. Their new product has, like, sugar and stuff, right? The new one with the sock guys, uh, like, cool, uh, like, tropical product. I, I think they'll live, but I would actually be interested to find out down the line if they actually have any you know, price impacts from it. I think that'd be interesting to find out eventually. But there's a limit to, to what we can really do uh, at times. I, I yeah, uh, that's my take. I, I, something interesting I had written down here despite this though, and this is, you know, related to the shortage and stuff, not so much on the commodity size. And good evening, everyone trickling in right now. I hope you're doing well. We're doing our live recording for the podcast right now. So if you have any comments on what we're talking about, feel free to put them in. For anyone listening to the podcast, you can come watch it live at 6 p.m. on Sundays, Eastern Time, at twitch.tv slash You can give your own inputs live now. But I guess a little somewhat related to some of the shortages because of, you know, climate issues, whatever, but much more just regular supply chain stuff on, on the commodity side of, you know, s- steel, microchips, whatever, you know, I had a sector, I guess, highlight thing on my notes here. Oh, I'm still... I didn't have my face cam on. I kind of screwed it up, but whatever. You saw the notes there. I have a a sector highlight for OEMs and, and like, North America automakers. Because I think... I think the point is, and I saw this... this is, I'm taking the source from this as a, on a Bloomberg uh, intelligence highlight, that the actual disruptions right now kind of reshaped the industry there for at least those OEMs and and automakers on a positive side because it's altered their business model 
beforehand, these automakers were, you know, forcibly shoving excess supply, you know, even on low margin vehicles that were seeing decreasing consumer demand out of the factories and, and into inventory just to keep sales momentum. But now they can't do that because of the shortages. They, you know, they, they have to drop production of those vehicles. So they, they've had to abandon that business model and they have to adopt a, a more lean aspect where they're kind of, pull, you know, they're getting pulled by demand of, of the consumers and what's needed at the time. So I, that, that benefits their margins for one. The other difference too is, you know, they're actually able to rise, raise the prices on their cars. And simultaneously, there was an interesting graph in, in this uh, Bloomberg piece about Ford's uh, discounts from MSRP prices. And those have been slashed. So they're actually doing, you know, far less aggressive discounting methods now. And, you know, particularly in the past year, I think it's been cut down by over 30%, which, you know, for the margins means a lot. And at the same time, because there's, you know, way less supply now and they need to catch up, you know, they're able to replace unprofitable and less prof like popular models, like, you know, like coupes, who the hell buys coupes anymore? They can replace that stuff with EVs to meet their, you know, their targets. And the, you know, at the simultaneously enables them to push out, you know, a better product mix uh, of higher margin vehicles like pickups and SUVs, while also you know having a lower level of long term supply. There was this interesting chart, uh, also from Bloomberg, that showed that the target amount of you know days of inventory outstanding was going to be like fifty to sixty, and basically for all the past five years, Ford's average was seventy seven. So they were always way above their target this whole time. And now they're way below it. So it gives an opportunity to still push the supply back to where they, they want to be and not go to excess supply. Not having excess supply uh, lying around and extra just money outstanding losing values is going to be big for the company. Operational efficiency from stuff like that's going to be important. So I think long term it's going to be interesting to watch out. And at the same time, <laughs> God, I think it's going to be interesting to see how the up and coming you know startups are going to react to it. I see someone in my chat that I'm very interested in seeing. Hello. You know I'm re recording my, my podcast live right now, that person. I'm going to say yo to you too, but uh, I'm, I'm curious to your presence here. <laughs> hey, Superman, how you doing? Court, how you doing as well? I guess we'll, we'll move on to the next topic then. But no, you no, you don't need to apologize for, for being here. It, it's it's all cool. I was just I was just curious about you were stalking my Instagram. <laughs> I didn't post this on Instagram. Oh, you oh you clicked the. I do I have my Twitch link in my Instagram bio? What? Am I that like basic? Hold up, hold up. Am I that basic that I actually have my Twitch link in my Instagram bio? I, I'm, I'm, tr oh, I, I gotta open up my. Do I actually? I'm sorry. This is like a bit off topic from what I was meaning to discuss, but I have, I have to look this out. It's good to see you here, though. I, I, I saw you earlier today, anyways, many times. But I have my Twitch. Li okay, I'm kind of embarrassed by that. I won't lie. My bio says a, uh, kick back and enjoy the rays, and it says like my college and graduation date. And then it has my Twitch link right below that. All right, I'm, I am a cringe lord of, of immense, immense degrees. But that aside, you're all still here anyways. So I'm doing something right, even if it's like barely. So this is not... Oh, wait, hold up. Why is the... Superman's modded? Because Superman's cool. That's why. But like, let's just get on to the next topic in the podcast. I, I'm so embarrassed by myself there. But the next thing I have is crypto. I actually have a whole slew of crypto stuff. And, and normally I'm much more of a stock-engaged person. But a lot of the crypto stuff going on in the past week has just been like kind of whack that I thought it was worth you know stuffing a good amount of time into it. And the first one here that I have is just the, the Bitcoin stuff late week. Because Bitcoin has continued to, to moon uh, throughout the past week. Uh, it's not as much as before, but we're talking about now it's the, 
the 15th now. So compared to when we last recorded, Bitcoin's up like another over 5%. So it's it's not bad. I I mean it's it's not as sharp as the week before, but it's still accelerating pretty quickly. Oh, uh, about that court. No, no, no. You're cool with that court. I'm just saying. Uh, we're just doing a podcast recording. But I mean, Bitcoin's up another five percent. I think Ethereum's up a lot more. What what I'm really what I'm really really interested in to see longer term is if there ends up being a, a positive correlation noted between. NFT transaction volume and Ethereum's price. I think that'll be an interesting thing for data people to take a look at over time. Because Ethereum's price has exploded back up to almost 100%, in particular as NFT trading volume has exploded back up. So I think that'd be interesting down the line. But the, the Bitcoin miners this week, you know, actually had their earnings, you know, for the most part. Uh, Hut. I actually personally owned through their earnings report because of my Twitch chat, you know, Twitch chooses what stocks I own thing. So, I mean, I technically had like a 70 some bucks in it, not because of, you know, I I wanted to buy it, but that's just how much people voted for me to put on the line. So because of that, you know, I I had some exposure and it's this really weird phenomenon to tell you the truth. Uh, of, of just things that really occurred w- with the rest of the Bitcoin miners. Because it's the same thing with, you know, Mara, Riot, Riot, etc. Right? And, and I, I think all of these actually missed, you know, the, the EPS stuff, too, at, at the same time. I know Mara missed. I know Riot missed. I think the really kind of weird thing is sometimes after these, like, reports, they'll actually move, like, detached to Bitcoin. And, and, you know, actually try to move a little bit towards normal stuff. The weird thing about it is, like, basically all of these miners have, you know, less than 10% of their actual market cap worth of Bitcoin. The, the whole thing is they get they, they use the money they get from share offerings, etc. To, to get miners to get more Bitcoin, right? But let's say Mara, for example, is worth, like, $33 a share about right now. It's not going to have more than, like, $5 a share in Bitcoin. Probably substantially less than that. Uh, I haven't checked their filing, so I know it was like that a couple months ago. Yet there's still way 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 up and you'll see that through you know riot mara btbt whatever the interesting thing is that that really happens in that explosive speculation right because even if they end up getting up to bitcoin you know just pricing in you know you're just compressing the gains and i i really think that's because there isn't a Bitcoin ETF. And there's been an increasingly, you know, potentially conducive stance to introducing one. But because there isn't a Bitcoin ETF, algorithms and individuals will trade these so heavily in sympathy to the actual price of Bitcoin over their actual NAV or fair value or whatever, that it just doesn't make, like, it, it just feels like they're, they're, they're way above where their actual assets are. Like, uh, GBTC still moves pretty well in line they use you know swaps contracts etc but the, the, like mara and stuff doesn't do those things but they still move in su- a very similar fashion i think it's a very interesting phenomenon the person asked yo what's up we're recording a podcast that's what's up right now so to everyone here welcome someone said hearing you on this reminds me of rick santelli and a- who's rick santelli i don't mean to who megalol that person but who are they i'm gonna look them up on twitter there's a lot of Rick Santelli accounts on Twitter. I'm just going to Google his name instead. Uh, someone just subscribed with Twitch Prime. Thank you for helping me pay my student loans. I really am. I, yeah, my student loans. Are Thank you so much. I would do the other sound effect stuff. I'll do it after the recording's done, though. I got your back on that. Uh, Rick Santelli's a CNBC person. Oh, it's this guy. Oh, man. I don't. Oh, I know this guy. Like, I know who he is. I, I don't mean like I've met him personally or whatever. But I'll, I'll show I'll show who the person was saying it looked like really quick uh, for those watching live. He, he met this guy. He's on CNBC like every day. He's on like Squawk on the Street and everything. You know, if I could have a job like that one day, I'd be pretty happy. But I love researching companies like too much, you know, to actually be on the floor. So I have such a preference to, to research. I do think being on the floor, like, he has great insights. I do think being on the floor 
um, is such a good way to get so much knowledge. I just don't think I'd personally enjoy being on the floor the same way as some people. Centelli always met. I'm always like internally molding, so I think we're like pretty similar in that part. But jokes aside, the, there's a couple other crypto things I have here in particular right now. I have this exhaustive note thing uh, about um, NFTs because I've been like very interested in stuff in this past week. Just because I have, a, if those that don't know, I have like a couple of Twitter accounts. I have one particularly for my streams, but I have another one where I kind of specifically like am more professional tweeting my finance stuff. Um, and that's just like at Strat Becker on Twitter compared to my streaming stuff, which is at Strat Streams. And the Strat Becker one, because, you know, I follow like a couple of these people that like do NFTs up, has just become inundated with like this pudgy penguin stuff. And it's just like a race to the top to see like who you can like trick into selling you know, at a higher price to, but it's so ridiculous. The pace, there was a tweet where someone was sad because they sold a pudgy penguin. And, and I'm just going to, for those that are watching, pull up a picture of a, of a pudgy penguin, just to get perspective on, on what this is, right? These are pudgy penguins. They're their NFT collection, right? Someone was, uh, upset. I just, the wrong button. Someone was upset because they sold one of theirs for 0.1 Ethereum a week and a half ago. And at the time when they sold it, that was about, you know, 250 to $300. That same penguin today, or two days ago, it's probably even higher now, is worth over $50,000 in one and a half weeks. The, the, like something like this the, that the people are seeing on Sherman. And you can Google Pudgy Penguins just to see the difference. Is they went from being worth three hundred dollars to fifty thousand in a week. It's just it's just this. It's just a pudgy penguin. I I fail to understand some stuff like that. To tell you the truth, like because I think it's just a race to see who you can con into selling it for a higher price, and eventually everyone's going to cannibalize each other. There's real real uses for NFTs, and the tech and the purpose of art and stuff, but not when there's nothing that has real. Like, when it's stuff that doesn't really have tangible value. I do have to give respect to Axie Infinity for what they're doing with their play to earn. And their sales are insane. They're doing 200 million in sales a week. Or, or you know, transactions on their platform a week now. You know, they don't. They obviously don't get $200 million in revenue a week. But that, that's how much they get. I think the problem for the NFT marketplace, especially for, you know, play to earn games like Axie Infinity, is that they grew so fast in the past month and a half to two months. They went from, you know, like a million in sales a week to 200 million, 200x. That inflated the actual price to entry to these games by such an incredible degree that it becomes cost prohibitive for new players to join. And that, that, that in, in, unintentionally decapitates their own growth potential. For, for example, two weeks ago, it cost $850 to start playing Axie Infinity because the, it came, became that inflated. Now, the, when I checked earlier this afternoon, it only cost $600. But $600 is still cost prohibitive to start playing. Uh, someone asked if FIFA fits in this category. I don't think FIFA fits in this category. Because you only pay $60 to start playing FIFA, right? You can get suckered into spending thousands on the loot boxes and stuff. But the, the barrier to entry is only $60. Right now, the barrier to entry to, for Axie Infinity is over $600 US still, right? And that's just cost prohibitive for new players to enter in. Especially while prices are dropping. And that, that's slashed their actual growth. They went from growing 50% week over week in their, in their sales volume on the platform. They went from $130 million about to uh, $200 million. They went from that much growth in a week to only going from $200 million to $217 million. So they went from going 50% week over week from a prior week of well over 100% to only 7.5% week over week sales growth on the platform. Because it's too cost prohibitive to enter. 
like I remember I remember seeing this with Zed Run when that was first like really popular because I was like, oh well maybe I could play this on Twitch for streaming. I think that'd be fun, like kind of memey thing to do, but it'd be engaging. And the cheapest Zed horse then was like three hundred dollars. It's a hundred now, but you know, I'm not gonna buy I'm not gonna probably drop a hundred dollars on a horse. A, a lot more people will though. I'm just frugal. But I don't think most a very large majority of people won't drop six hundred dollars to start playing a, a game like Axie Infinity. So I think that's an issue for the NFT platform. When it when it grows too fast like this, it can cannibalize itself. And, and that was my take on it. I think there's a couple things here I have for crypto scam stuff in the past week. Um, probably not like a ton of directly finance oriented people, you know, outside of the you know the people that often watch Twitch, YouTube, etc., would be you know in tune with the some of this stuff. But I'm talking in particular about the Save the Kids token. Which was a charity token initially made where the transaction fees, you know, and stuff would, would go to, to save the kids' charity. And the goal was, oh, you know, it's going to be it's gonna be great. Or it was backed by a ton of huge content creators. One of them was uh, Fraser K, a f- uh, former member of FaZe. He got fired from FaZe for this. And it turned out, and this YouTuber CoffeeZilla did an extraordinary job uh, at researching alongside um, some ordinary gamers. And I think the other one that was working with them was Barely Showsable. To actually go through the decent find that they had all the crypto wallets and everything. And it turned out it was like a total scam organized by, by Fraser K. Basically, it looked like. And allegedly, I should say, as a legal disclaimer, because he tried to sue CoffeeZilla for his video. So I'm going to say allegedly. Keep that in mind. Don't sue me, please. That it was a scam organized by uh, Fraser K. And his associate, Sam Pepper. And Sam Pepper's fled the country. And initially, Fraser did this. Uh, you know, super scripted legal team apology, or whatever, and everyone hated it. And then he came out with another one uh, two days ago that he said was, you know, totally against the advice from it from his legal team to do this one. Uh, and, and it's basically saying that, like, he's saying he isn't a crypto mastermind and he trusted the wrong people, but that he takes responsibility for trusting, you know, these other people and making mistakes, or whatever. But it all felt like pretty disingenuous because this guy has like, you know, tons of shell wallets and stuff to just stuff his crypto into whatever, and and he no and he knew what he was doing, at least in in my opinion. So it's like him him apologizing, saying like you know that as the his video said that he lost track of the real Fraser or whatever and got lost in like the money and the fame and that's a huge regret or whatever, right? And while simultaneously, like, having all these shell wallets, pumping up all this stuff, directly working with it, it just felt, you know, not genuine. I, at the end of the day, like, I, I honestly think, like, someone that did stuff like this, obviously their career should be done. The problems when you're, like, on the internet and stuff, when you're famous, young and stuff, you come with something like this. Like, so many parasocial relationships exist that you'll probably actually be able to, like, keep us, like, like, he's obviously never going to get job back with FaZe or anything. But, like, he'll be able to still survive with user fees, even though, like, he very likely, you know, stripped countless hundreds of thousands from them, you know? And that's my, that kind of fits my take, especially with the next thing. I have this tweet on my uh, Stratbecker Twitter account from May, or no, it wasn't May, it was later than that. I think it was June, maybe early July, that said the, uh, the DeFi crypto market will be just like the OTC market after 2008 within the next five years. And that, this, this, you know, Charity token scam thing, and the next thing I have here, really helped my case very, very, very strongly. I'm going to see if I can pull up my timeline just so I can, like, shill this tweet out exactly. And I'm totally going to post it in chat just so you all can like it and, and give me validation on my super fire, you know, hot take of something that's completely accurate uh, and and true, right? You're, you're all going to support this because it, it's completely accurate right why, why can't i find this on my timeline what is the, I, i'm just bad at this I, i'm just bad i i found it i found it i said and exactly i'm gonna post the link to this tweet uh, in the chat so y'all can validate it is that uh wrong buttons is that my hot take on pure speculation that the DeFi crypto market in five years will be just like the two, the otc market after 2008 and then you have literally the biggest DeFi hack in history in the past week. It was Poly Network. They had $600 million 
stolen plus. I think it was like six hundred eleven million about. To the point by one individual that found that found an exploit. To the point where the organization was making a plea letter that they posted on Twitter, you know, begging the hacker to return the assets back because, you know, we, we have your wallet and it, it won't end well for you. And when I first, when we first found this out, I was live on like Tuesday night or something. So like five days ago from the time of recording, this six days ago from the time this, you know, gets published uh, on all its platforms. And I was kind of laughing almost because like this guy that, that did it was you putting his blockchain stuff man, I think I saved the project, I, you know, this could, if, if they were, you know, better, this could have been a billion dollar steal, I was like, honestly, like, obviously people potentially lost, like, a ton of money and stuff, and it's terrible, but I found, like, the, I think the sheer trust in stuff like this, like, it, it's just, this, this really emphasized the dangers of it, I think the crazy, crazy part, though, was that the hacker returned the money, like, I'm like, wow, the hacker actually returned the money. And there's still $33 million in Tether that's still, like, locked. Like, by Tether. But he actually gave it back. So, like, the, pe- the people end up being, like, made whole at the end of the day. Which is kind of crazy. But at the same time, it completely exposes the risks of using stuff like this. So I'm going to keep my hot take on that for the time being. Not... Full stop. Full stop. I, I don't know. It's like... Imagine, like, because if, if I put my money in a bank, right, like, all my money in a bank, and the bank gets robbed and all the money's gone, I'm still FDIC insured from some of my money. Like, if I had, like, $10 million there, I wouldn't get all my money back, but I'd get a lot. No, okay. So the person in the chat that said, what if you rob the bank? That said, I'm not going to rob a bank, okay? To be very clear, that'd be a terrible idea. That'd be, that'd be stupid. Do not rob banks. Straight up. But I, my, my point was that, like, if someone robbed a bank and all my money was there, like, because of in- insurance and regulation stuff, I can get my money back. It, like, it's protected by insurance. If someone, if some hacker, you know, if all my money's in, like, a, a DeFi thing and the, someone finds a way to inflate the token to shit or, like, what happened with um that iron thing a while ago, the, the Cuban thing, or, or, you know, some hacker is able to steal all the funds, like, what happened with Poly Network and doesn't give it back. I'm not protected. My money's gone. Right? And, and what am I going to do about that? I remember the the Iron thing. I think it was Iron? It might have been... No, it was Titan token. Sorry, it's Titan. Some other DeFi thing. Uh, someone managed to inf- completely inflate the token to worthlessness. And someone, like, on Twitter saying, like, am I going to get anything back? I put in $20,000 and now this is worth a dollar. And I was like... <whistles> this is gone. So I think there's, like, the, uh, real unchecked risks... Uh, on some of the DeFi market when you're talking about stuff like that. And I think it's important to uh, be safe out there at the end of the day when, when you're using stuff like that. And I'll I'll steamroll along to my next thing. I'm kind of yoinking this from Animal Spirits, so sorry, Ben and Michael, for kind of yoinking this. But I was on a walk uh, early this afternoon, and I like to listen to their podcast while I'm walking on weekends. Because, you know, it's something nice to listen to. I can stay up to date on things. Yada, yada. And I, I kind of like just listening to things while I walk. And, you know, they talked about, and this did happen earlier this week, Biden extended the, the student loan payment halt, uh, even for this week, for federal student loans. And on the podcast, the Animal Spirits podcast, it's like, why doesn't why don't they, like, you know, start at least by, like, you know, canceling interest payments on debt? Uh, and they, they were talking about, like, you know, then it'd be, like, government investment, like, in people's education. And they get, you know, the principal back. Yeah, I, I think, you know, and, and I'm obviously going to have some level of bias as a college student, but the idea and concept behind it probably would be pretty popular, in my opinion. Because this is the way I look at it, you know, this is probably the way, like, all younger people will look at this uh, in comparison to, you know, societal things with past generations. Our cost of education is exponentially higher than our parents, especially our grandparents, etc. But particularly those two generations, because they led to weak, they put in weak regulations that allowed these non-profit uh, private colleges to just explode up prices. It because of how um, 
you know, they, they can take advantage of the federal aid system. Yeah, Lix, I'll get to that. I'll get to your opinion on that. And, and hard to, you're right, it's too high. Inflation's like 230% since the, the eight, like, 85, I think, but college prices have gone up uh, 1,200%. At the same time, though, you know, our parents and grandparents went to school on a, on a comparative basis, inflation adjusted, exponentially cheaper than us, right? So they didn't really have to take out loans. So they did, it was extremely negligible. And they're fine. And they can get their, you know, better jobs or whatever. And, and, and they're fine. Slight. The problem, what they also did too, sorry, I'm just trying to adjust the lighting on it, is then they increasingly created a system that is completely based on credentialism. So to actually get a good job, right, you need to have a degree. Or you need to have a degree and a master's. Or, you know, and I think this also goes to the... So a lot of the internship applications that I see online for my industry, like it says, oh, you need to have like three plus years experience or two years plus experience for this entry level position. How is it an entry level position in that case? But I, I, either way, our costs are so much higher and then we have to take away more loans. And these loans, even the federally backed ones, at least when I started going to college, were in between six and eight percent annually compounding interest rates. When the 10 year bond yield when I started college was... Under 2%, it was like 1.8, 1.9, and it's only 1.3 now. Yet, our student loan payments on these federal loans are, are 6 to 8%. On top of the fact that this like credentialism-based system that the, edu- the generation that got to have access to college for way cheaper built makes it so that we have to push way more into this. And I'm talking not just myself, but you know, broadly generational mindset, right? And we kind of got screwed a good amount on actual aid during the pandemic because they gave some money to schools that they required someone to give that out to us, but they based it off of various things. I know, for example, this year, my financial aid to my college got cut drastically because my house, my family, like, you know, my parents' income, one parent, single parent, rose by like 5, 3% or something like that, like year over year for the tax stuff or whatever, right? And they, they cut it by 20% for that. So we're in situations where it's taking increasing amounts of, like, you know, personal debt and stuff to do this stuff. And a lot of the pandemic stuff didn't really go to us. If you remember very, very distinctly, depend, adult dependents were left in a particularly screwed position on a lot of the financial aid stuff uh, during the pandemic, right? You know, because... Is dependents over 17 wouldn't get any money. Not just they wouldn't get any money, but the parents also wouldn't get any money for them either. So, you know, you saw a big public outcry on it because of the elderly. You know, el- elderly dependents. But it's huge for college students. They're, and their families, they're struggling to get by, and they're, they're axed out of it. We got some in the last bill, right? But especially in the spring of 2020 and onwards, like spring and then the fall ones, not a zilch. And we got a, some uh, on the back end of it. Yeah, adult. Uh, someone's saying adult dependents got hosed? Absolutely. And this goes to Lix's take. This is a viewer in chat that's listening. Said, uh, everyone else got help during the pandemic by not college students loans? I, I don't, like, if I knew, like, because I specifically were trying to reach out to my congressperson over this. Because, not just for myself, obviously, because I view myself personally as a bit more of a privileged position. And it would have been a big help then. But there's so many other families that that'd be a huge, huge difference back then. Especially for preventing, you know, the, the increased rates of, of dropouts or decreased enrollments. And people get hosed for that. So, uh, you know, my, my perspective on it, at least, and I think probably anyone here that's a college student, this person that asked when I'm graduating, graduate uh, spring 22, spring 2022, that even it, you know, I understand canceling student debt outright, federal student debt outright, very polarizing issue, right? But what if you don't cancel the debt, but at least cancel the interest payments so that over a course of, you know, a, a decade, a student that took out, you know, 50000 in loans because of how expensive school's gotten, and I'm just using this as a hypothetical, this isn't myself, I'm just saying in general. Someone that took out, you know, $50,000 in loans doesn't end up over the course of 10 years having to pay back almost $100,000, but can just pay back the 50 k 
or if they took out 25, they pay, pay back 25 instead of like 45, right? You know, give give a lifeline in a way and consider the actual, you know, loans, not things meant to get money back from these students, but an actual investment in the future, you know, economy. I think a shift in perspective like that could be helpful, at least in my opinion. I think it also take a huge, huge burden uh, off the back of students. I think anyone that's like in the stream chat right now, it's also a college student or heading into college, would probably full heartedly agree when they say not having to worry about these like very high interest rates out of college would personally be like substantial help to them like getting their feet down and starting to move. Obviously, Nelnet or you know Naviance are going to be pissed and they're going to lobby and say you know no you can't do this yada yada, but I mean realistically. It'd be helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. You're not treating myself... Yeah, someone's saying they're not treating themselves so they pay off their loans. You know, someone's noting, like, the popularity of, you know, free pub... Like, you know, public university college. Right? Well, a lot... It's just... Please, canceling interest, like, you know... Wouldn't, like, necessarily, like, you know, delete, like, delete money out, too. I guess the way I put it. I guess the hard thing is, it's harder mentally, too, because you're saying you're not treating yourself to you pay off my loans, right? You deserve still to treat yourself, the person that said that, that's watching this live. You still deserve that, that level of respect and being able to treat yourself. But it feels so much harder to actually do that right now because of all this stuff. I, I know at least I still have anxiety over, um, you know, the tuition bills or whatever for the household and stuff. But I still know that... At, like I. And I know that I, I come from a place point and I'm in, I'm in a good spot right now where if I, I can convert my current internships and stuff into a job down the line, I'll be able to pay off my loans personally very quickly, you know, probably within a year or two. And, you know, help other family and stuff like that. But not, like, so many people aren't in that spot, right? So I think that as a student myself, I have to look at it from a place of privilege but recognize there's so many other peers around me that don't have that same, I guess, point, like, ability, right? And also realize, I think that, you know, older people should also realize, you know, students are kind of shafted in comparison to what we were when we went to school. You know, there's, there's some, there has to be some level of equilibrium. That actually took up a lot more time than I thought it would. Yeah, someone's saying, uh, that their degree requires an internship, but because of COVID, they did away with the requirement. So now I'm out here applying with zero experience, but it's not really... Yeah, exactly. I think it makes it a, a lot harder. I was, su like, personally, I was super lucky to get this internship that I'm at right now, because I didn't expect it. You know, I, I reached out to this person, I cold emailed them, asking, you know, if they could mentor me over the summer at all, despite me having class and stuff. And I did this one report for them, and it took a long time to do, and they liked enough, and they, you know, offered to... Yeah, I could, you know, intern and work on more companies for them and stuff. It's been such a huge advantage because I have this thing on my resume, and, and not just that, but because it's been like a more boutique firm that I work at. I have much more personal level connection with this person who has a lot of other connections, and that's a big personal advantage down the line, right? But if you're doing something that has a required internship, and then you get screwed out because of COVID, and then your internship period was swept off by COVID, because I'll play this. I know as a fact from you know looking at my college stuff that it's much hard, like, they, the places will heavily, you know, perf like, take juniors and seniors over freshman, sophomore, uh, for, you know, their, their path to graduation, you know, the timelines and stuff. If you can't do, if you don't have an interest with your freshman, sophomore year because of that, and then your junior year of college, that, that summer is 2020 summer during COVID and everything, you got screwed, really, really in a weird way. And I, I think there needs to just be some balance, honestly. You know, I, I, I'm taking this as my take a little bit as a college student, right? And, and talking to other college students a lot. You know, because that's kind of more the demographic of my audience in a way, at least on Twitch. I, I It's probably a little different on the podcast eventually and it's on Twitter and stuff. But, like, that's the perspective so many younger people feel and, like, a cynical, like, and they feel cynical because they feel like they've been left behind through all this. That they're trying to meet, you know, the, the continued, like, increased credentialism list society and that like they're getting no assistance in, in reaching the, these increasing barriers that are set up by the, the people currently in charge 
So I, I think there's there's room for actual ways to improve that, I guess, is what I was trying to say. And I know, like, uh, just canceling interest payments, like, won't solve every issue in the world on the on federal loans, too. Like, that is that doesn't even count private loans or whatever, right? But there's there's items, and that's just a that's just a item or an item that that could be chosen, right? I guess I'll talk about one last topic before we wrap up the podcast tonight. I have this one here about COVID a little bit and pretending it's impacts in the economy. Zone. I'm not really going to talk about COVID tonight. Um, I guess at least it's like you know the health impacts and stuff. I, I think everyone's kind of more up to date on the news and stuff with it now. Is the Delta variants kind of spread around? I know at least from my college. You know, I think I already talked about it, but they're changing the guidelines and what you have to do when you get there. You have to do entry testing, stuff like that. But what's been really interesting, at least, is to see the actual impacts in the economy not end yet. Because one of the major impacts is uh, shipping container rates. There's an issue in Bloomberg Index, people tweet about this, the the shipping container rates from Shanghai to L.A. And those are pretty heavily impacted from the ongoing COVID stuff uh, in China because they've been shutting down some important locations uh to try to contain spread there and you know we're still facing a lot of other things here in america still i think the difference at least in america is like so many people like just even though it's we're like 130,000 cases a day pretend like it doesn't exist anymore and act like it doesn't exist which is like on a health scale <laughs> like I, I don't want to see people get sick but yeah at least on this point for the shipping container rate stuff the, the container rates have completely ballooned and i'm going to show this picture on stream really quick just to represent this rate shipping container rates you know last year before the pandemic or this is 2019 they were down at like under two thousand dollars right per 40 foot box and this is oh wait no this is 2020 i'm sorry this is all 2020 before covid these shipping container rates were under two thousand per 40 foot box during the summer of 2020, they rose up to about 4,000 per 40-foot box. And they kind of stalled out around there for, from about September of 2020 to late April of 2021. And they exploded up as these, as these new things happened. And now, a 40-foot box uh, shipping rate from Shanghai to L.A. is over $10,000. It's tempered off a bit. The rate of change has definitely slowed down a lot. It's much more dramatic in late June, early July. But it's still trending upwards. It's it's down from its peak right now, but you know, it could actually repass it at, at this rate. I think it's really interesting to see the real world impact from that. You know, I've been talk I've you know listening to conference calls to some companies that are like trying to say, Oh, well, you know, this stuff doesn't impact us nearly as much because, you know, m- most of our stuff ship by plane because of weights on it or whatever, or like the weight of the product or whatever, right? But this is real, actual impacts that we're going to see long term. Just year over year, it's up two hundred twenty percent still. And I, I I think that's a really interesting note that like, the actual pandemic's impact on you know our lives isn't over, even though you know we're you know acting more like things are normal in our day to day lives, right? And I think that's important to keep in mind. This is this is real you know actual more long term stuff. I know like. Uh, some people just don't really talk about this stuff anymore, but it's still real. And, and you know, it's still important to t- take note on that stuff. I think that's going to wrap up our recording tonight, though. And I'll still uh, be, as always, after I finish these recordings, sticking around, talking with my live chat for a bit, just chilling out. But that's going to end up this recording for Theta Talk, our fourth episode tonight. This is going to be published on 9 a.m. Eastern, Monday morning, as per usual. And this is recorded every Sunday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern. The recording time might actually change as the upload time uh, in September because I'm moving back to college and my actual streaming schedule will be based around when my roommate is working, you know, their their campus shop where they're, you know, not in the dorm room. So I'm not, you know, disrupting, you know, their, their personal life stuff. You gotta be respectful, stuff like that. So the actual upload time and, and recording time might change. So, you know, the way topics are discussed during the week might change because, you know, I'm kind of looking at this from a perspective right now of, you know, I'm at the you know end of the week heading into the new week, so I can kind of let more time simmer in for takes to come in and, and really talk about this stuff. But it might be more, I guess, hot off the press during the college year. So I'll, I'll keep you all up to date with that. But I do want to say for everyone that's followed so far uh, on Spotify, I, I really have to say thank you so much. It, it means a lot. Everyone listens there. Everyone that's here 
watching the recording of the podcast live, I, I do have to thank you all a lot because you're the ones that give content and, and like, you know, substance to all this. So if you want to follow on Spotify, I'll post the link in the live chat. And we are on Apple Podcasts now as well. Let me open up uh, Apple Podcasts to shield my, my live chat really quick too, right? Got gotta, gotta get that done uh, as well. But if you're listening to this podcast live and you want to watch and, and interact with this live, then you can actually go to twitch.tv slash Becker and watch this live right now, at least on Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. And be a part of it. You know, I, I think it'd be pretty cool. To, to have you guys be a part of this. So if you're listening and haven't been on the stream yet and want to be a part of it, this is your uh, number one chance to do it. And with that, I'll say have a great rest of your day, evening, morning, you know, night, w- afternoon, where, whatever time it is, wherever you are. And thank you so much for putting your time into this. Take care.